Welcome back to the Stronger by Science podcast. My name's Eric Trexler. I'm the host of the show, but today I am going to be joined by a very special temporary guest co-host. His name is Greg Knuckles. Greg, how you doing? Doing well. How are you? I am doing great. Um, obviously, today is Valentine's Day, um, arguably the biggest holiday in the United States. And my girlfriend hasn't posted yet about it and more specifically about me and how much she appreciates me and my qualities. But the nice thing is it's only like 1.30. So I think tonight she's probably planning a really big post. So I'm looking forward to, to definitely seeing that on social media. Um, all right. So before we get into the podcast today, uh, just a few reminders. If you'd like to support the show, there are many ways to do it. So you could like, rate, or subscribe wherever you access the show. You could use our discount code at bulksupplements.com. The code is SBSPOD, S-B-S-P-O-D, and that gets you a 5% discount on your order. And you could also subscribe to the Mass Research Review, which Greg and I are co-authors of, along with Dr. Mike Zordos and Dr. Eric Helms. And then finally, if you're in the market for a high-quality diet app with really convenient tracking features, uh, MacroFactor is the diet app that we designed. Uh, if you're not sure if it's going to be right for you, we do offer a free trial. So you can take it for a spin and see if you like it. Uh, okay, road to the stage, Greg. How are things going? Uh, yeah, things things are going reasonably well, I would say. Um Nothing really exciting to report. I'm targeting a relatively slow rate of weight loss. So weight has been essentially flat for the past week, which is something that you should anticipate from time to time. Um, but so one of the things in lifting that I like is kind of a, uh, a, a mile post that things are going pretty well is when I have a really bad day in the gym uh, whatever weights that I can still hit there um, is kind of an indicator to me that I'm definitely at least that strong. So, you know, if if I have a really bad day in the gym, training doesn't go well, but then I look back and say like, oh, you know, the numbers I hit today are the numbers I could hit on a good day six months ago. Then it's like, you know, that that's still progress in a way. Um you know, it, it wasn't my best day, but my best or my worst day now is as good as my best day not all that long ago. Uh, and so today, when we're recording, is the day after the Super Bowl. Uh, had fun last night. Um, ate a lot. Drank a fair bit. Uh, I'm about as bloated as I ever get right now. Um, and I woke up at like 2.35, which was a number on the way down that I was very excited to hit not all that long ago. So I, I'm viewing that through kind of the same prism uh, as I do, you know, hitting numbers on a bad day in the gym for lifting. So uh, all things considered, I, I view that a positive indicator. Um, another thing that I'm very excited about is the weather is finally getting better. Uh, yeah. It's you know, I, I feel bad for for all of our listeners in Canada and the Northeast and I think like probably Northern Europe as well, where mid-February is still cold time. Um, we have short winters here in the South, here in North Carolina, and mid-February is, is generally when things really start warming up and like pretty consistently getting into 
the high 50s to low 70s again. Um, so yeah, the weather's getting a lot better. It's going to start becoming much more convenient to get outside more, take more walks. Um, so I'm, I'm very much looking forward to that, just in a general sense, but also as it relates to Road to the Stage. Um, it, it's going to be a lot easier to get more steps in, get more active. Uh, so yeah, that's, that's very nice. How is, uh, how's the road to Athens? Uh, the road to Athens is fine. There's nothing too exciting to report. I did want to mention, I think it's really important what you alluded to there, the idea of finding different ways to monitor your progress. Um, so like, you know, when lifters start getting to a really high level, you will find that sometimes you have to remind them like if they're like hey i can't just throw five pounds on the bar you know five more pounds every time i go to the gym you have to say well you're doing the same load that you did last time but your rpe's lower you know kind of less conventional ways to look at progress over time and the same thing goes with weight tracking like sometimes i have to remind my clients i know that you're you know focused on yesterday's weigh-in but consider what your highs and your lows used to be and now consider what your highs and lows are today rather than getting caught up on you know any specific singular weigh-in so i think that's really important to keep in mind um but shifting to the road to athens uh like i said nothing too exciting uh, i've been keeping the mileage per session really low but i've been keeping the frequency of my runs higher um and I've been doing a lot of extra stuff that to me is really boring, but I think is necessary. Um, I, I've been having some hip and lower abdominal issues when running. Pretty painful stuff, unfortunately. But I've been doing a lot of stretching, a lot of additional core work, and that's been helping a lot. So, um, you know, it's nothing too exciting, but uh, much in line with the... Uh, the road to enlightenment. I've been trying to focus on enjoying the process rather than just focusing on the metrics, like just looking at mileage week over week and running times. Mm -hmm. I've been trying to actually enjoy the process of getting into running and getting more proficient with it. So um, within that context, it's going pretty good, to be good. honest. Good. All right. So in terms of the... Uh, the heart of the episode here, the content, I want to kick things off with a very brief uh, research review. So this is going to be brief because it basically just revisits some topics that we've discussed on the show in the past. So we don't have to lay the entire foundation and all the groundwork for these topics. But there was a cool study recently that tied some of these topics together in a way that I think makes the topics more understandable. I, I think it fills a gap and provides us with some additional clarity where there used to be a little bit of confusion uh, from my perspective. So the topics that we're talking about here are basically, um, they, they all fall under the umbrella of low energy availability. So at various times in the podcast and in Stronger by Science articles, we've alluded to topics like metabolic adaptation. We've alluded to uh, energy compensation. And what I mean by that is, you know, if you add 100 calories of exercise to your daily routine, your total daily energy expenditure is not likely to increase by 100 calories you will compensate in other areas of energy expenditure 
So rather than increasing your total daily energy expenditure by 100 calories, you might only increase it by like 70 or 75 calories because of this compensation in other areas. So uh, those are the two topics that we talk about, but we also sometimes allude to things like uh, relative energy deficiency in sport. So some of the more clinically oriented symptoms that accompany low energy availability. So the general theme here is that when we restrict energy um, and we're doing a lot of exercise and body weight is going down in most cases, what we see is a collection of physiological responses uh, across many different aspects of our physiology. So this particular study um, was looking at compensation for the calories that we spend on exercise, but it was looking at it specifically in the context of an individual's energy balance. And so the idea was, the study, by the way, was by Willis and colleagues. The title was Physical Activity and Total Daily Energy Expenditure in Older U.S. Adults, Constrained versus Additive Models. So the constrained model, we've talked about that before. Uh, one of the more uh, widely known researchers who talks about it a lot is Herman Ponser. He wrote the book Burn, I think was the title. Yeah. But the idea with the constrained energy model is that the compensation that we see um, tends to get more extreme as physical activity goes up. So if you add a little bit of physical activity uh, to your daily routine, you will expect a fairly considerable percentage of that to actually increase your total daily energy expenditure. But when you start to get to really, really high levels of daily physical activity, there is a greater degree of energy constraint. So there is more compensation happening such that when you start adding more and more and more and more physical activity, the compensation gets greater and greater. So total daily energy expenditure at a certain point starts to get really constrained. That is a model that opposes uh, a different conceptual model for energy expenditure, and that is the additive model. The additive model is, strictly speaking, uh, I think we can safely say it's not fully correct, right? Like we know that energy compensation happens to some extent in certain situations, right? Correct. Yeah. But, but the additive model is completely simplistic, which is, I don't care how much physical activity you do. If you add a hundred calories to your day, your total daily energy expenditure is going to go up by 100 calories a day. Like that, that's pretty much the additive model. It's completely simplistic. It makes no accommodation for energy compensation. So uh, we've talked about energy compensation before. We've talked about how uh, it clearly varies a lot between individuals. Uh, people with high body fat uh, tend to have a greater degree of compensation based on the observational literature. In most cases, on average, we only compensate by about 28%, which means about 72% of the calories we add through exercise truly are driving total daily energy expenditure upward. So that's kind of where we left the conversation. But what Willis and colleagues wanted to know is when we compare 
the additive model and the constrained model, how do they look in different states of energy balance? So does one model versus the other perform better when a person is in negative energy balance or a caloric deficit? Uh, how do the two different models compare when we look at energy balance? Um, so just, you know, people eating approximately their maintenance calories, relatively weight stable. And then how do these models compare when we look at positive energy balance? So when we look at individuals who are, um, you know, in an energy surplus, and as a result of that, you know, generally gaining weight. So this was an observational study. Um, the sample included 584 free living uh, adults in the United States. Energy expenditure was measured using doubly labeled water, uh, which is a very, very nice way to do that in free living subjects. And physical activity was measured using accelerometers. The way they defined energy balance, because this was observational, uh, they looked at change in body weight over this fairly long observation period. So if an individual gained more than 3% of their baseline body weight, that was taken as an indicator they were in positive energy balance. If someone lost more than 3%, that was assumed to indicate that they were in negative energy balance. And if you were between those thresholds, plus or minus 3%, you were assumed to be in neutral energy balance. So the results were, uh, they could get very complicated if you want to, to dig into the, the details and the methodology. But in a nutshell, the results were pretty simple. Uh, for people who were in neutral or positive energy balance, the additive model actually did just fine. Now we know that it's not strictly perfectly true because energy compensation does happen to ex an extent. But when you're talking about neutral or positive energy balance, what this tells us is the degree of compensation is not particularly large. The additive model did just fine mm -hmm. uh, in modeling those outcomes. However, in negative energy balance, the constrained model did a much better job describing the data than the additive model. The reason that I think this is cool and the reason I find it to be pretty exciting and wanted to acknowledge it on the, on the show here is because when you talk about the constrained energy expenditure model um, and who is experiencing this constraint and to what degree, uh, sometimes people will point to findings in the literature that seem to be a little bit hard to understand, right? So, it, you know, one of the reasons that people um, or one of the ways that people kind of defend and promote um, the constrained model is when we look at two different societies. So, for example, Ponser, in, in a lot of his earlier research, they would look at total daily energy expenditure uh, and they would look at it in a very affluent society where there was a lot of industrialization. Most jobs were quite sedentary. Um, and they would look at total daily energy expenditure there and compare it to societies where there has been less industrialization and most of the day is spent doing work that is physically quite taxing. So you would assume that, of course, the more sedentary, more industrialized society would have lower total daily energy expenditure. But surprisingly, they were actually, they, they tend to be quite comparable when you compare across these two uh, group, two different pop populations or groups of individuals. So 
a lot of people would look at that and and be a little bit confused about how that is and then sometimes make the interpretation well apparently energy compensation is so robust that no matter what you do total daily energy expenditure is going to be the same mm -hmm. But at the same time, we look at other scenarios where like if you look at athletes and you compare the total daily energy expenditure of an athlete versus uh, a more sedentary person within the same population, that physical activity is driving total daily energy expenditure upward. Yeah. You know, there, there are these instances where you have these discrepancies where sometimes the additive model looks fine. Sometimes the comp the compensation or the um, the constraint model looks fine and we never really knew how to sort through some of these apparent discrepancies. Mm -hmm. uh, another great example is like, I've mentioned this before. I know a lot of endurance athletes who eat like crazy and train like crazy, um, but but clearly their total daily energy expenditure is quite high because yeah. they're eating a ton of food and never gaining weight. But I also in the physique world have known plenty of people who it seems like they virtually live on a treadmill they are chronically dieting, and you're like, man, those treadmill hours do not seem to be moving the needle. Like, like you, you look at this individual and say, I think they really are eating fairly low to moderate calorie intake and spending a lot of time on the treadmill, and something about these numbers just doesn't seem to line up yeah. beyond like, oh, I, I assume that they're just binging and I don't know about it. So I think what's cool about this... Um, explaining this variability within the context of energy balance is that it kind of helps us make sense of some of these findings you know so why do we see uh apparently a high level of energy constraint in the chronic dieter on the treadmill but it seems less extreme in the endurance athlete i think a lot of it has to do with fueling right so endurance athletes uh, usually when you have good coaches in charge of the team, there's a high priority and a, a big emphasis on fueling for your training. Mm -hmm. Like it is explicitly a goal to maintain neutral energy balance. And then when you see people falling short of that very quickly, you see symptoms of relative energy deficiency in sport. Like when that goes off and uh, negative energy balance is maintained for a while, you start to see some of those symptoms of metabolic adaptation and relative energy deficiency in sport uh when you look at the other scenario where someone is a chronic dieter doing all that cardio it would make sense that we see a more extreme example of energy compensation there because they are chronically trying to maintain that neutral or that negative energy balance whereas the endurance athlete is hopefully making a focused effort to maintain neutral or even slightly positive energy balance. And then when we look at, you know, these, some of the earlier work by Ponser, for example, you look at an affluent industrialized society, one of the things you tend to see is an increase in body weight over time. Mm -hmm. uh, generally speaking, in, you know, those types of populations where there's a lot of sedentary work and an excess of calories and an obesogenic environment, most people are spending most of their adult years, in many cases, in a slight positive energy surplus, positive energy balance. Um, on the flip side, you could imagine that in a less industrial society, industrialized society, um, where there's a lot of physical labor on a daily basis, it's probably a lot less likely that you're spending that much of your time 
in positive energy balance. And when you look at the the different populations studied um, within those studies themselves, you can see a huge mismatch in body fat percentage despite similarities in total daily energy expenditure. So mm-hmm. I think that this is a really fascinating um, finding, and I think it definitely passes that sanity check uh, and, and helps contextualize some of these findings where sometimes the additive model seems to do well and sometimes the constrained model seems to do well. And I think energy balance is, uh, is a huge factor um, dictating which model makes sense in which particular scenario. So yeah. um, I think this also has relevance um, you know, working in the physique space and doing a lot of nutrition and fitness coaching over the years, uh, you do run into some situations where people are truly puzzled. Um, you know, they're they're trying to lose weight, but they're struggling to lose weight. And uh, they look around, they see other people who are succeeding apparently quite easily w- with their weight loss goals. And this kind of variation between people in the weight loss process can be perplexing sometimes. Um, But when you start digging into this whole area of research, we should really expect a tremendous amount of variability in the individual's um, weight loss experience. You know, and what I mean by that is even if we ignore exercise, we know that total daily energy expenditure varies a lot from person to person, even when they're the same body size. And even if they have the same amount of fat-free mass, that was one of the key findings in the paper. I believe Ponser was the lead author of that with the the doubly labeled water study where they Mm -hmm. looked at total daily energy expenditure. We discussed it on the podcast, but even at the same level of fat-free mass, there was a great deal of variability in total daily energy expenditure between people. Um, We also know that energy compensation does occur when we exercise, but it varies a lot in magnitude, apparently from person to person, and depending on now we seem to to see that it, it varies based on the energy status of the individual, positive, negative, or neutral energy balance. We also know that metabolic adaptation occurs when we restrict energy, uh, but that also seems to vary quite a bit from person to person. So we've got this variability between individuals to start with, just based on you know resting energy expenditure and total daily energy expenditure. But then when you look at variability in terms of energy compensation, variability in terms of metabolic adaptation and the way that we restrict non-exercise activity in response to an energy deficit, we start with a lot of variability and then we add more variability and then we add more variability. So I think it's almost kind of reassuring when you look into this research and you say, why does it seem that responses vary so much? And then when you dig into it, you say, well, they kind of have to, right? Like when we know all these sources of variability, how could they not? Mm -hmm. Uh, And I I know that can be frustrating when when people are, are pushing really hard toward a weight loss goal. And it seems a lot more challenging when they compare to others and and compare to their peers. But I also think there's something reassuring about that where it's not like this set of goals is inaccessible to you. But what we have to do is focus in on 
what we know about this variability and how we might put together some strategies and solutions to alleviate, uh, you know, some of these increased challenges that you're facing. Yeah. So um, one of the things, this is going to be a shameless plug, which was not the intention of the, the segment, <laughs> but I, I know that you've noticed this um, with, with macro factor, we do keep a real time running estimate of your estimated total daily energy expenditure and you've mentioned in the road to the stage that over time you can see that dropping. Yeah. Um, and you know, that, that is calculated in a deterministic fashion such that, I mean, it, it is what it is. And if you could not see that and you couldn't actually get a sense of that data, it would be immensely frustrating to run into plateaus in your weight loss. But when you can see that, at least you can contextualize those plateaus. You can look at the data and say, oh, I'm reaching a plateau. My diet, uh, but dietary intakes have been the same, but clearly I can see that my energy expenditure is dropping uh, over time. So um, I think it's really nice to have that actionable feedback that you can observe. And most importantly, what these these studies tend to tell us is, even if you solve the equation and you get a correct calorie intake and a correct physical activity level to support your goal rate of weight loss, that is a temporary solution because these things will change as physical activity changes and as energy availability changes and as your body weight changes. So yeah. that's why it is critically important to keep an eye on these things because they are not static. They're dynamic in nature. Yeah, for sure. And and just to be clear with that uh, with that brief macro factor plug, it's less that we pick segments of the podcast for the purpose of uh, promoting macro factor, and more that you know there are these things that we would be talking about anyways, and and these aspects of physiology that might make it, uh, if not challenging, at least like require some some human effort to figure this shit out for yourself to determine what the the appropriate calorie level for your goals is so it was just like hey what if we made a diet app that, <laughs> that did all of this shit for you um so yeah it, it's more that um you know we we created a product that would fill a need related to things that we talk about anyways and now that the product's out it's not like we're going to stop talking about those subjects Right. And we also monitor related topics to make sure that if there's a place to improve the app that we're able to do that. Right. Yeah. Like, uh, you know, this is an area of research that we're bound to follow intently because if there's an opportunity to optimize, then we're going to take that. Yeah, for sure. Um, okay. So, uh, just to wrap things up there, uh, this is a, a body or an area of the research that's evolved really significantly over like the last year, to mm -hmm. be honest, which is, it's exciting to, I mean, I've been writing about these topics literally since like 2014 and, uh, kind of nothing happened between like 2014 and like 2019. Well, yeah, that's not entirely true. Well, it's not the, that the, nothing happened, but the, the first, change in the last couple of years has been exceptional. I yeah, mean, it's, yeah. Like it's been the, dramatic. The first big Ponser paper that kind of proposed the constrained energy model, that came out, I believe, in 2016. Yes. Um, and, and I remember, like, I saw that when it came out, and I would just, like, 
Garrett when people were talking about um like hey you know i i'm trying to lose weight and i'm exercising this much and like something doesn't tend to be working out or doesn't seem to be working out i'd say like hey there's this researcher herman Ponser, cool paper you should check it out and so like i basically did that from 2016 to like 2019 um but by that point i think some people were like slightly sketched out by that reference because it's just like hey you have this one paper that's proposing the constrained uh, energy expenditure model. Why hasn't there been follow-up work on this? Why aren't other groups getting similar results? I was like, shit, shit, shit. Have I been giving people bad advice for, for the last several years? Um, yeah, and then in, in 2019, the floodgates kind of broke, and, and there's been a lot more research in that area. Yeah, but it's been really cool because, like I said, I mean, I, I was aware of that. Uh, the big, mo- it was mostly a review paper by Ponser. It might have had a little bit of original data in there, if I recall correctly. But uh, I remember that paper in 2016, which kind of distilled the main points of the idea. But I think a lot of people who were more skeptically minded looked at it and said, yeah, there's not like a a lot of experimental evidence. There's not a, a lot of like really tightly controlled evidence. Um, and there were some of these scenarios where you're like, I don't know, in this case, the additive model seems fine, right? Like, mm-hmm. cause it, yeah, sometimes people would kind of over interpret the constrained model and make conclusions that really lacked face validity. So the, uh, the 2016 paper laid the foundation for the like you said the floodgates have really opened the last two years and a lot of these gaps in knowledge have been filled so it's been an exciting time for for someone who's been following this for like eight years or so to see Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of these papers coming out And, and you know one other thing i'll add is i think one of the reasons we talk about this so frequently is like now that now that burn came out and the idea of the of the uh, constrained energy model kind of does have broader cultural purchase within the evidence-based fitness sphere. Um, I do see a lot of very bad interpretations of it pretty frequently. Like um, yeah, it, th- this is something where as a content creator, I see all the time with my work. Like if I make a somewhat nuanced point, about 30% of the people are going to come away with it. Uh, come away from that with a very simplistic point that massively oversimplifies what I was trying to say. And I think the same thing has happened with the constrained, uh, the constrained energy expenditure model where I now see quite a lot of people um, saying like, Oh yeah, yeah. You should check out this guy Ponser. He has this cool book burn. Did you know that actually when you exercise that doesn't change your total daily energy expenditure at all? Uh, It's fully compensated for, like your needs going to go down, your metabolic rate's going to go down. Um, so yeah, actually, the amount of exercise you do ha- bears no relation to how many calories you burn in a day, which uh, is wrong. <laughs> right. Yeah. But I I do see that uh, that interpretation floating around in the ether pretty frequently. So yeah, I mean it's 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 a pretty nuanced topic um, that is difficult to boil down to a soundbite. Uh, but the t- the two the two most sound biteable interpretations are the additive model, very simplistic, or w- what I would call like maximum compensation. Uh, that's also like a very simplistic interpretation, but both of which are wrong. Um, 
So yeah, I, I think there's value in just continuing to talk about the topic and try to reiterate to people that it is a, a relatively nuanced subject. Yeah. All right. So moving on, what do you have next for us? Yeah. So I, I've got a little research review as well. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll start with that. I also just have one random thought that doesn't really fit well into our typical segment structure, uh, but I'll, I'll save that for later. So anyway, um, maybe two months ago or so, two or three months ago, um, I mentioned on the podcast that a new meta-analysis had been published on concurrent training and the interference effect, uh, and that the abstract of that meta-analysis basically stated that the interference effect is fake, uh, at least as far as it, as it uh, relates to strength and hypertrophy. Um, and I mentioned at the time, like, yeah, like I haven't had an opportunity to read it yet. This is the abstract. Uh, I'll, I'll probably dig into it eventually. Um, so just kind of to circle back on that, I did actually dig into that. Uh, I reviewed it for a research brief in mass. Uh, and yeah, going to talk about it a little bit. So uh, it was a meta-analysis on concurrent training and the interference effect. Um just as kind of background, uh, concurrent training is basically a training program that simultaneously uh, includes resistance training and aerobic cardio endurance type training. Um, and the interference effect is the idea that doing cardio can interfere with uh, adaptations that are typically associated with resistance training. So hypertrophy, strength development, uh, velocity and power development, etc. cetera. Uh, it is worth noting that um, sometimes I see the interpretation that the interference effect is the idea that both strength training and cardio training interfere with each other. Um, but it, it's basically just a, a one directional thing. Like cardio might interfere with strength related developments. Uh, the opposite is not true for strength training interfering with cardio uh, related adaptations. Just a just a quick note to throw in there. But anyway, uh, as it relates to strength and hypertrophy and power development, uh, this meta-analysis was was interested in that uh, that topic. And so the author searched or the author started with a systematic literature search uh, for all studies that met four inclusion criteria. First, needed to be a longitudinal study that lasted at least four weeks. Uh, second, the groups needed to, so there needed to be at least one resistance training only group and at least one concurrent training group doing both resistance training and some some form of endurance training. Uh, and both groups needed to have the exact same resistance training stimulus. So, you know, if, if one group was training three times per week with a particular program, like if the resistance training group was training three times per week with a particular program, the concurrent training group also needed to be doing the exact same resistance training program three times per week with cardio added on top of it. So for example, if a study compared two days of lifting versus or, uh, four days of lifting versus two days of lifting and two days of cardio, that would not have met these inclusion criteria. Uh, the study needed to include measurements of maximal strength, explosive strength, and or muscle hypertrophy. Uh, and lastly, for... Uh, 
um, measures of for for strength measures or uh, power slash explosive strength measures the uh, the outcomes assessed needed to be exercises that were trained in the actual study so for example uh, if you're interested in lower body strength development and you have a program where people are doing squats then you can test squat 1rm that that would count for inclusion in this study but if you had people training squats and leg press and the only strength measure you had was like maximum isometric knee extension torque that would not have met uh, the inclusion criteria. So they they rounded up all of the studies that did meet those criteria, and there were 43 studies with a grand total of 1,090 subjects that did meet those inclusion criteria. Uh, 37 of the studies had strength measures, uh, 18 of them had measures of power or explosive strength, and 15 of the studies assessed hypertrophy. Um, and in short, they did find that there wasn't um, that there wasn't a significant mean effect, um, in, kind of in favor of concurrent training, mitigating strength development or hypertrophy. Um, and not, and not, and it wasn't even one of those situations where it's like, ah, you know, there's, there's a pretty notable effect in one direction, but there's some variability in study results. And so kind of the 95% confidence interval barely crosses zero P equals 0.07 or something like that like no there, there was no difference for uh strength development the standardized mean difference uh like the, the effect size basically was uh 0.06 p-value 0.45 and for hypertrophy the standardized mean difference was 0.01 p-value 0.92 which is as close as you can get to no difference in a meta-analysis basically um and uh, however, for like vertical jump height, measures of explosive strength and power, uh, there was a significant effect uh, in favor of concurrent training, mitigating those types of adaptations. So, you know, if you're interested in improving your one rep max squat, or if you're interested in adding muscle to your frame, it seems like you can do concurrent training probably and not really need to worry about it too much. Like uh, the, the meme of cardio kills your gains seems to mostly be incorrect in those contexts. However, if you're trying to improve your vertical jump, uh, maybe even improve like your power clean or snatch, uh, improve your, I don't know, 100 meter sprint time, something like that then concurrent training might not be quite as beneficial. Like doing a fair bit of endurance training probably is going to uh, negatively affect those power-related adaptations. So it's worth noting that a literal and fully expansive interpretation of these results is probably unjustified. So for example, uh, you probably aren't going to be able to train effectively for a powerlifting world championship and a like hundred mile ultra marathon simultaneously. Um, as with any scientific pursuit, it's important to interpret the results within the constraints of the actual variables being studied. And so for most concurrent training studies, the cardio stimulus is like, you know, maybe two to four times per week for 20 to 45 minutes per session and within that context, like for that given dose of cardio, it doesn't seem like you really need to worry about the interference effect. 
Um, however, if you were doing way, way more cardio than that, then like, yeah, it's, it's probably going to have a negative impact on strength development and hypertrophy. Uh, and also it's worth keeping in mind the resistance training stimulus and studies like this. It's pretty similar. You know, people are lifting two to four times per week, uh, you know, three to four exercises per muscle group for a few sets. Like, you know, people aren't training as if they're prepping for the Olympia, um, so if your uh, resistance training volume is way higher and you're really, really pushing your capacity to recover uh, just with resistance training in the gym, then there might then there might be some interference effect even from relatively moderate doses of endurance training. So you know it's it's worth keeping that in mind. However, I, I do think that this meta-analysis shifts kind of my mental, it shifts my priors when it comes to uh, concurrent training and the interference effect. My my mental framework essentially used to be that under most contexts, the inter- the interference effect was uh, was real, relevant, and of a reasonable magnitude. Where it, it was essentially your job to try to figure out the perfect mix of variables to. Uh, mitigate this thing that was likely to happen to the greatest extent possible. And now kind of my prior is under most circumstances, you probably don't need to worry about it too much and probably don't need to go super far out of your way to attempt to mitigate it. However, there probably are contexts where you do need to do that. So if you're pushing your training really, really hard, or if you want to do a lot of endurance training or, you know, situations like that then you probably do need to worry about it a little bit but if you're just kind of doing what most people would consider a normal dose of resistance training uh, and you're on a relatively normal uh, cardio program you know you're not training to be an endurance athlete you just want to get out and run two or three miles three four days per week in a in a situation like that you probably don't need to worry about the the interference effect uh, with concurrent training to any notable degree. Uh, and, and the last thing that I'll add is if you are still concerned about it and there's one thing that you want to do that's going to matter more than anything else for mitigating the interference effect, it's just separating training sessions uh, when it's possible. So, you know, if, if you want to both go for a run and get a lift in on a single day, if you can split that into two sessions separated by at least four to six hours, uh, you'll get a lot of mileage out of that. Uh, and if possible, just do it on separate days. Um, so yeah, that's that's the state of, of the literature as it is now. It, it's not that the interference effect cannot occur. It's just that under most normal circumstances, it probably doesn't occur for most people most of the time. Yeah, I mean, an extreme case of this, um, I, I've gotten several questions in the past where people are like, you know, they're, they're really into lifting and they want to maximize their strength and hypertrophy, but they're like, man, Eric, I don't know what to do. Like I walk to class every day and it's like, a, <laughs> it's like a 25 minute walk. Or they'll say like, I ride my bike to work. So I'm on my bike, uh, 35 minutes a day. And so I, I think the research, I'm quite confident that the research is increasingly alleviating those types of concerns, but yeah. You know, I think you did a great job summarizing the study, and I think it's great that all these nerds and lab coats are keeping themselves busy. But 
Have you ever seen the memes that compare the quads of elite marathon runners to elite strength athletes? I I have seen them. Do you have any, I mean, it seems like there's kind of conflicting evidence in that regard. I, I don't think that warrants a response. Uh, however, I, I do have a couple things to add. One is uh, whenever I talk about any sort of study, I generally shout out the title just for people who don't want to check the show notes, but they want to listen and, and type it in, I guess. Uh, the title of this meta-analysis, if you want to check it out for yourself, is Compatibility of Concurrent Aerobic and Strength Training for Skeletal Muscle Size and Function, an updated systematic review and meta-analysis by Schumann. Um, second, uh, based on what you just said, like, you know, like, Hey, I just walked to class. Do I need to be worried about that? Um, unfortunately, I think that one of my favorite bodybuilders ever, Tom Platts is responsible for some of, some of that type of thinking. So like that, that was actually like a brain worm that, that made it into my head at yeah. one point. Cause dude. Platts had, if you're listening to this and you don't know who Tom Platts is and you care about physical culture at all, just Google Tom Platts, P-L-A-T-Z. He had some of the freakiest legs ever. And he was also competing before kind of the mass monster era when bodybuilders really figured out peptide hormones just right to get fucking huge. So like he was competing prior to that era, but he still had legs that would not be out of place on the Olympia stage today. Probably freakier than half of the current Olympia competitors. And if you're um, going to look him up, look up, first of all, pictures of yes, his quads. Yes. But also, there's a classic video of him squatting. It, it was like 500 for 23, right? Yeah, it was like over 20 reps with at least 500 pounds. Yeah. It is a fascinating video it's incredible yeah definitely watch it but anyway so tom platt's incredible set of wheels awesome bodybuilder uh but he had this quote that i came across when my mind was still much younger and squishier and more impressionable uh where he said uh don't run if you can walk don't walk if you can sit and don't sit if you can lay down <laughs> just just emphasizing the importance of rest for uh really making sure that you could train your legs as hard as possible. Um, and so, yeah, like I, like for a while there, I found that very influential. It's like, dude, if Tom says it, like it's gotta be legit. Um, and so, you know, maybe when, maybe if you have leg development that rivals Tom Platt's, who knows, you might be in a situation where you need to be so concerned about the interference effect that you shouldn't run if you can walk, you shouldn't walk if you can sit, and you shouldn't sit if you can lay down. But if you are not, if you don't have quads that are in the same zip code as Tom Platt's, you probably don't need to worry about it all that much. And just based on the general concept of how probabilities work, if you're listening to this show, you probably are not rivaling Tom Platt's with Correct. legs. Yeah. Uh, and that's not an insult. That is a testament to the... Once in a generation leg development that Tom Platt's had. Yeah, that's that's a completely quantitative statement. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So I was going to talk a little bit about body recomposition, but I think I'm actually going to save that. I think a great way to uh, to wrap things up here. I'm curious about your 
miscellaneous thought that doesn't conform to our typical show segments. I'm, I'm curious what this is about. I mean, I assume this is a, a miscellaneous thought you've had as well. Um, and it's something that we've indirectly referenced on the podcast before. And that is just the idea that when it comes to supplementation, sometimes I wonder if we are maybe selling certain supplements short um, or if there are some supplements that may be effective that we currently believe to be ineffective, simply based on the fact that most of the supplements that people take, there's not great dose response research on them where... So here, here's how most, here's how most supplement uh, bodies of research develop. Someone does a study, they test a particular dose of a particular supplement, and it works. And then other people say, like, oh, cool, supplement worked for that. Uh, let's either try to replicate those findings or test them for a different activity or in a different population. And then, hey, what dose are we going to use? Oh, well, this dose worked in this study. Let's just use that dose. And basically, it just snowballs from there, where when an efficacious dose is found, either that dose or something very, very similar to it is used in, like, 90% of the literature. <laughs> um, and so, like, there are some exceptions. Uh, so there's a lot of fish oil research, and there's a fair bit of dose-response research on fish oil. Uh, caffeine is studied a lot. There's a lot of dose response research on caffeine. Which tells us you probably don't want to take 11 milligrams per kilogram. Correct. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so yeah, there, there are some notable exceptions where um, some studies have a fair bit of, of dose response research on them, but most of them don't. Um, and where this has come up on the podcast previously is, uh, I, I think you talked about this, beta alanine. I can't recall if it came up on the podcast, but I'm certain it came up in a mass article yeah. and in the mass audio roundtables. But yeah, that was the first thing I thought of when you started mentioning. Well, I thought, it, yeah, that was one of the two things I thought of. But yeah, there was a, a really fascinating, fascinating meta analysis like one or two years ago where they... uh did some some really sophisticated statistical analysis and their results basically indicated that most of the beta alanine research we've seen to date is probably not saturating muscle carnosine levels to a maximal extent or even a near maximal extent. Mm -hmm. um, and so like my title for the mass article was like, is every beta alanine, beta alanine study underdosed? Yeah. Um, because uh, the analysis would indicate that most of what we know about beta alanine is from study designs that probably came nowhere near close to maximizing our potential to actually saturate muscle carnosine storage via beta alanine supplementation. So it'd be like if we uh, started out the body of literature with like one gram a day of creatine and never tried five and just said, ah, this doesn't really seem to do a whole yeah. lot. Um, because yeah, one gram a day is not going to saturate muscle creatine. So it was, I was really stoked about that meta-analysis because I had actually bumped into Roger Harris at a conference quite a few years before. And Roger Harris is like the godfather of beta alanine. Like he's, most people would credit him for pretty much everything that came after, unless I'm, uh, mistaken. But, uh, 
but yeah, I mean, he was saying this several years ago. He's like, ah, oh, man, we got to start pushing it. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but yeah, so th- th- that's definitely one of the first things that came to mind. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So who knows? Like beta alanine is currently sitting in a place in the literature where like, ah, you know, maybe it's effective for improving endurance performance for kind of like middle distances. But, uh, you know, if it does affect strength endurance in the gym, maybe it's only like two or three percent or something like that. Like, does it maybe it has a small effect, but it doesn't seem to have a particularly notable effect based on the studies that currently exist. But, you know, if the studies that currently exist are underdosing beta alanine by a factor of two or three, who knows? It could be considerably more effective and we just don't know it yet. Um, another uh, another supplement that I know we've talked about this on the podcast is betaine, um, where like human studies use mostly the same dosage, but there's some animal research, particularly in pigs, um, where like they just use it as an additive in livestock feed and it seems to help quite a bit with lean mass accretion and also uh, reductions in fat mass where you know maybe in a an equivalent dose in humans would be similarly effective but at this point hard to know just hasn't been tested um and uh what what brought this to mind is another example came up in the stronger by science facebook group earlier this week um, the the topic of capsaicin and potential ergogenic effects of capsaicin supplementation came up. Um, and like basically there have been some studies in rodents suggesting that it can uh, quite robustly increase uh, endurance. So uh, not a particularly pretty experimental model. They basically just give rats or mice supplements, put them in the water, uh, and just, you know, let them tread water until they sink. Um, and so for mice, I think I think it was 10 milligrams per kilogram of capsaicin uh, seemed to be quite effective uh, for improving endurance in that context. Like quite a bit more effective than capsaicin seems to be in human research. You kind of do the math, so you have to convert a rodent dose to a human equivalent dose. Because um, basically as... As things get larger, the relative dose to have a similar physiological effect is is lower. Um, but but basically, in humans, uh, you you take a rodent dose, you divide it by about 12, 12.3, and that's the human equivalent dose, and that works out to like fifty to eighty milligrams of capsaicin as a supplement for kind of the the normal range of human body masses. Um, which is like two to three times higher than the capsaicin doses that that have ever been studied in humans. So like that, that just kind of got the wheels turning. Like, you know, who knows? Capsaicin may be more effective than than we're currently giving it credit for. Uh, Beta alanine may be quite a bit more effective than what we're currently giving it credit for. Um, Betaine might be quite a bit more effective than what we're currently giving it credit for. And so it's, it it is it is interesting cuz uh like like i mentioned with um with concurrent training like ultimately it's hard to interpret a body of research outside of the bounds of the details that have actually been studied so you know you're you're not looking at concurrent training research of someone prepping for a marathon in the olympia at the same time so you can't generalize that far uh in, in much the same way with supplement research like 
we can look and say like, hey, this supplement at this dosage doesn't seem to be particularly effective. But without a fair bit of dose response research, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's time to write a supplement off uh, quite yet. So, you know, I don't know uh, necessarily what to do with this information because one of the, uh, like, I, I, I personally, like, I'm not planning on going out and buying a ton of supplements and super dosing them and seeing what happens because I'm my just natural inclination towards supplementation is pretty conservative. Um, and one of the knock on effects of not having dose response research when it comes to performance outcomes for a particular supplement is you also don't have dose response research when it comes to adverse effects of a particular supplement. So, um, you know, like a, a two to three times higher dose of capsaicin could be, who knows, could be very effective for, uh, you know, ergogenic purposes in humans might uh, improve exercise performance quite a bit. But then who knows if you've ever had a lot of spicy food, maybe, maybe you're the type of person where spicy food really messes with your stomach or maybe what happens the next day is just so unpleasant that you don't want to you don't you don't want to worry about supplementing with it um so yeah like like uh adverse event reports you know the, they also exist within the range of doses that have actually been tested so um yeah i i wouldn't necessarily recommend someone just going on pubmed finding every supplement that has been reported to not work and then just say to yourself like what if i took five times as much like would it work then um so j just kind of like theoretically who knows maybe it would um but i i personally don't want to be the guinea pig for that uh but it it, it does just make me wonder um just based on the fact that they're like i i, I do so i kind of think that once if i ran science and it was just a completely top-down thing, and I was the god of it. Um, one that would be ter terrible, that would be horrifying. But one change I would make to supplement research practices is the first time you get a study coming out saying like, hey, this supplement seems to be effective, the second study that someone would need to do is a pretty robust dose-response study on it, just, just to see if that dosage used in the first study was the optimal dose for that supplement as it stands now for the vast majority of supplements in the literature those studies just don't exist and so when it comes to optimal dose dosing even for supplements we know to be effective um we're kind of flying blind which you know could be better yeah i mean a lot of times um rather than taking your approach where the second study is dose response uh, across a broad range of dosages usually what happens is that one study comes out and then we say okay let's do 20 more studies using outcomes that are measured with kind of questionable reliability in a variety of slightly distinct populations and then in like six years we can do a meta-analysis and it might tell us that the effect size is worthwhile and then four years later you replicate the first study in the body of literature but in women that's yes it's always a yeah. free publication um <laughs> well yeah because no one bothers to study women in the first 30 tries right <laughs> which is ridiculous but yeah yeah um but no i see you mentioned that you tend to be conservative with regards to supplementation 
And I honestly don't know where I fall in that spectrum because thinking back, like I think of myself as being on the conservative side and and fairly skeptical, Um, but I do write about supplements a lot and I field a lot of questions about supplements. And sometimes people get annoyed that I leave the door cracked open. You know, I think right now with supplements, there's these kind of polar opposites where there are some people who take like 31 supplements the moment they get out of bed, right? And mm-hmm. some of them have no evidence whatsoever. Yeah. The other side of the spectrum is like, if if the first three studies don't all have an effect size of at least like 0.3, they're like, oh, that's a joke. And anyone who leaves the door open is a charlatan. So like, yeah, I mean, I've I've written about these topics before and I've said like, it's possible that most of what we know about beta alanine underestimates the true effect size or the what it is capable of in terms of the true effect size. I've also mentioned with betaine, pretty much everybody studies 2.5 grams a day. Mm-hmm. Um, I can think of one study that did like 9.9 ish, but I don't think they did any lifting with it. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, yeah, I mean, the the animal research would suggest that that's nowhere near enough. Um, and then the same thing goes with capsaicin, as you, as you reviewed. But I'm also really torn on this topic because I usually end those articles by saying, yeah, don't try this, but someone should. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, and what I mean by that is we need researchers to look into these dose response effects specifically with regards to safety, but to do it in a controlled, safe environment, which is what research should afford you. You should be able to carefully monitor the trial and terminate quickly if there are severe adverse events or just an unacceptably high prevalence of mild adverse events. Yeah. Um, But yeah, I've been in a, a tight spot where people have reached out to me and been like, hey, Eric, check out this dose I'm going to try. What do you think? And I'm like, dude, I can't sign off on that because I don't know if that's safe, you know? But uh, but yeah, it, it's a really tricky situation when, when you try to get down to it. And with these specific ingredients, what's really tough is it's nice to say, oh, higher doses might be better, but there are logistical challenges or at least some red flags that I think are slowing down some of that progress or, or that that uh, enthusiasm about studying higher and higher doses. So for capsaicin, capsaicin, from my perspective, is probably a no-go. But higher doses might be more feasible with capsiate, which is a non-pungent version of capsaicin, which should alleviate some of the GI discomfort that you alluded to. So maybe that problem I, I i think those doses of capsaicin that i mentioned are completely feasible uh okay but anyway uh maybe if you don't have as robust a stomach i, I think capsiate is po- possibly a solution to that you know but then you look at beta alanine and you say oh let's go higher with dosing the issue is if you get over like two grams of serving for most people, that's going to be enough to have a fairly uncomfortable level of paresthesia, that tingling feeling that you get in your skin, like your face, the back of your hands. So um, that's a logistical challenge. And people are talking about different time release doses. But with beta alanine, it's like 
until they put together really good formulations for time release um, beta alanine supplements, you're either stuck with tingling like crazy or you're just supplementing all day long because you're dividing it into you know doses that are like one or two grams each, but you're trying to achieve well over six grams a day. So you feel like you're just kind of t- constantly taking the next dose all throughout the day. So logistically, that's a challenge. And then when it comes to betaine, I believe, I'm not certain about this, but I believe I've seen some evidence suggesting that there could be some unfavorable effects on blood lipids when the dose starts to get relatively high. Mm -hmm. And so that's something that they'll have to sort out. I think I've only seen that in one study. So could it be a a false positive? Could it be just an instance of sampling error? Sure, that, that could be a possibility. But for each of these, there are so many unknowns about what happens when you escalate the dose. And I'm hoping that some intrepid researcher might hear this and say, hey, that looks like a series of three studies that would be very feasible to do and very informative. So yeah, I, like I said, I don't know where people see me on the supplement spectrum. I'm, I'm certain that no one cares to <laughs> place me on that spectrum, but I know I've taken flack for being too conservative. I've taken flack for being uh, too open to supplementation. So Personally, I don't do really much experimentation at all, but I do hope that this research develops uh, in the years that follow. All right, so moving on uh, to play us out. As you alluded to, Greg, last night was the Super Bowl, and we enjoyed it together. We had some delicious bao buns that you made, which were phenomenal with some mushroom in there. Uh, some you. fried rice that you made that was terrific uh, with a variety of different tofu options. Um, now, I think we should close the show with some reflections on the Super Bowl and the NFL season. My first thought when I thought of this idea was certainly no one cares. However, I looked into this and this is a baffling stat. Uh, there's a list put together by Nielsen. That's the company in the United States that does like uh, television ratings. Um, so advertisers always look at the Nielsen data to decide how much they're willing to pay for certain advertising spots. So if you look at the list made by Nielsen of the all-time most watched single network television broadcasts in United States history by average viewership, uh, the list of the top 30 of all time, 28 of them are Super Bowls, which I think is absolutely baffling. The only two on that top 30 list were from 1983 and 1978. I think there was a boxing match and the finale of MASH, if, if I'm not mistaken. You know what? what? Your, uh, your data is already out of date. What? Yeah. Um, Appar- I, I looked this up like three days ago. Yeah, I, I'm aware. Apparently, the uh, the most recent Super Bowl just bumped the boxing match, and so so we're 29 to 30. Yeah, so now it's a mash and 29 Super Bowls. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, I was like, no one wants to hear about this, but apparently, it's like the only thing that people tune into. So, what did you think about the Super Bowl? Ah, uh, I I wanted the Bengals to win. Uh, however. I I am glad that Aaron Donald finally got a Super Bowl. Um, I think that he's one of the 
best defensive players in the history of the league. Uh, so that was good to see. Also, I just purely from a sadistic perspective, I enjoy the pain and suffering of Detroit Lions fans and seeing Matt Stafford play very good football for so long in Detroit and just have such a bad team around him consistently that just zero playoff success to see him go win a Super Bowl with another team his first season after leaving Detroit. Incredible. That's that's awesome. Like just the fact that they as an organ, this is Detroit's just catching strays now, even though they weren't even in the game. Uh, But yeah, the fact that the lions had probably the best running back in NFL history and Barry Sanders had no success with him had, I think arguably not the greatest receiver. The greatest of course is Jerry Rice, but maybe the best receiver just in terms of all of his physical skills and Calvin Johnson and it's just such a miserable organization that both of them just retired in their prime rather than continue playing for Detroit. And then you have a very good quarterback and you can't win with him forever. And then he goes to another team and wins a Super Bowl the first year. Like, even though I did want Cincinnati to win, those two things, both Aaron Donald getting his Super Bowl and uh, Matt, Matt Stafford's Super Bowl, hopefully causing pain and anguish for Detroit Lions fans. Both of those two things do do make the LA win worth it to me. That is an interesting um it's an interesting glance at how catastrophic a dysfunctional organization can be. Mm-hmm. Cuz like like you said, I mean the talent over the past several decades has been phenomenal when you look at Barry Sanders, Calvin Johnson, Stafford, it's not just that he couldn't win the big game with Detroit they were never even like remotely relevant that I can remember. Uh, They might've had one or two decent seasons, but I mean, there's no way his career record there is over 500. Yeah. I I think they went, I think they went like 11 and five couple seasons during his tenure, but no, they they were never like upper echelon. Right. So yeah, organizations when, when they're dysfunctional, they can really shrink talent, which is quite a cautionary tale. Uh, my perspective on the Super Bowl, I was rooting for Cincinnati. Most of my friends, uh, you know, because I grew up in Southern Ohio, most of my friends are Bengals fans. My brother is a huge Bengals fan. So on their behalf, I was rooting for the Bengals. So I was kind of bummed out that uh, they couldn't get the win. But nonetheless, um, you know, it was a good production. The The NFL playoffs, when they started, I looked at the bracket and I said, this doesn't make any sense. Because like if you looked at the bracket and how the teams shake out, I was like, there are going to be a lot of close games early in the playoffs. You know, normally you you give the the better teams a nice easy path to you know to the later rounds, and it just didn't turn out that way. Looking at the bracket even before the playoffs happened, and so I was like, this is dumb. The NFL is playing this wrong. Uh, I'm eating my words with that because. Like every game in the playoffs was extremely close. There were overtime games, like, you know, no one really won by more than like three points throughout the entire playoffs. So while I didn't think it made sense from a bracket building perspective, it made for some really compelling football at every round. Yeah. Top to bottom, I think this may have been just the greatest slate of NFL playoff games ever. Yeah, but my fear is that the way they put the bracket together, it it kind of 
reduces the advantage that you get from being a higher seed. Like uh, you get the buy, which is a good thing. Wait, what? Didn't they put the bracket together the same way they always put the bracket together? I don't know. I didn't pay attention until this year. <laughs> May- <laughs> I just looked at the bracket. I said, this looks weird. There's going to be a lot of close games early. And I thought that would lead to some blowouts later in the playoffs. Yeah. But I was completely wrong. It was really compelling start to finish. No, they. I- I'm pretty sure the bracket's the same as it's always been. This was just a year where there weren't any like truly great teams like m- there was a fair bit of parody top to bottom for yeah. all of the teams that made the playoffs but no it's it's two wild card games uh and then one and two get buys and then uh number one seed plays kind of the wild card game corresponding with the worst of the team so one gets an easy path and then two seed that got the buy plays like the more challenging of of the two wild card winners and then you know, championship or, or conference championship game, Super Bowl. I mean, it, th- this was just a year with a lot of parity. Yeah. Like it, it was the same system as always, I think. Well, either way, it turned out to be very entertaining. I was hoping the Bengals would pull it out, but, uh, you know, the, the Rams had a great year and yeah. they played a great game. So congrats to them. That's true. Um, all right. So I think that does it for this episode. I didn't get to my segment on body recomposition, but that's kind of the cliffhanger. If you come back next week, I'm going to talk all about body recomposition, which is simultaneously trying to lose fat and gain muscle. It's an a-, a really active area in the fitness space right now. A lot of people have conflicting opinions about how feasible it is for different people, depending on their training history, their training status, their body fat level, things like that. So I'm going to get into how feasible it is as a goal. And then beyond that, how I would actually structure a diet uh, or dietary approach to successfully achieving body recomposition. So that'll be coming next, next episode, which is exactly one week from today. Um, But that is it for now. So as always, thank you for joining us and we'll see you in a week. Thank you for listening to the Stronger by Science podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, be sure to sign up for our free newsletter to get concise breakdowns of relevant research, as well as 28 free training programs for all skill levels and all schedules. We hate spam just as much as you do, so we'll only email you when we have something really interesting to share with you. You can sign up for the free newsletter at strongerbyscience.com newsletter, or just go to the Stronger by Science homepage and click the free programs button at the top. If you want to join in on the Stronger by Science podcast conversation, be sure to check out our Facebook group and our subreddit. The links for both are provided in the description of today's episode. Finally, please remember that we are not medical doctors or registered dietitians. So before you make any changes to your exercise or nutrition habits, be sure to check with a qualified healthcare professional. Once again, thank you for listening, and we will be back soon with another episode of the Stronger by Science podcast.